Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. I'm Damien Fantato, the Deputy Editor of Financial Advisor. It might have been more than a year since MIFID II became reality, but its effects are still rippling through the financial advice profession. Uh, we're here with Chris Jones, Proposition Director at Dynamic Planner, uh, to have a chat about some of its effects um, on the industry. Hello, Chris. How are you? Hello. I'm fine. Thank you much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you very much for coming. Um, so we saw some difficult markets in late 2018 and into 2019. Um, what does this mean for advisors in terms of the way they do their jobs since the introduction of, of, of MIFID II? Yeah, I think the uh, the timing of what has been and perhaps is anticipated to be more difficult markets after uh, a long bull run isn't necessarily going to be helpful for advisors at the same time when uh, the uh, valuations are being uh, disclosed by DFMs and um, uh, platform providers directly to their clients. Um, and of course, their own uh, cost and charges have been shown in a more uh, clear way through, um, through, through pounds. So I think um, what it does mean for um, advisors and we, what we hear from advisors is that they are uh, they need to articulate their value even more mm-hmm. um, perhaps they may well have had an easier time than what they were used to perhaps the advisors have been around for a while and, and many of the the skills that they've perhaps honed perhaps in early parts of their career that maybe uh, have forgotten they need to use during a very easy bull market they're going to have to start to use to help their clients to understand not only the value that they do but also why their um, investment solution is suitable. Mm, so there's the potential for some slightly awkward conversations there if they're not um, making the case for um, why they're charging what they charge. Absolutely, and I, I think the, um, the what might be happening is what we hear here, and what we can perhaps um, see from uh, from normal consumers is that the actual reaction from the consumer hasn't been as bad as what you might have imagined when you looked at it in the cold light of day or in um, uh, in the theoretical sort of uh, analysis of what was required. Um, and you know, I'm. I'm I'm not an expert, I don't know for a fact, but I get the sense that what um, the actual end consumer is doing when they are receiving the documentation is looking at it and sort of perhaps getting what might be described as cognitive overload, looking at a very, very complicated set of figures in an envelope amongst many other envelopes that that, that turn up, uh, think about it looking too difficult and just putting it in the bin and not really... Um, uh, taking the time to understand them, and because of you know the sheer weight and complexity of information that's been uh, be, being provided. Mm-hmm. And what impact, uh, if any, do you think this will have on um, advisor charging structures? Because I guess obviously you were, in a previous life you were involved yeah. in intrinsic. So, yeah. how would you anticipate that advisors will react to this? Yeah, I, th- I think the the advisor charging on an, on average, um, I, I believe, is. Uh, fair value. Um, so the average amount that an advisor will charge for the services that advisors provide is certainly um, a, a, a fair, it's an efficient market. Um, and of course, you know, other advisors may well have um, uh, seen uh, what other others are charging and tried to undercut them and, and, and taken their market if uh, before um, the actual charges were disclosed to the client. So I think there is an efficient market in terms of what the av- average charging is. I think there's two two parts 
to what that means an advisor needs to, to, to do is, first of all, is where they are or have been delivering um, actual value is to really focus on that very much of what a advisor does for a client they take for granted so many of the good things that um, an advisor is doing to protect their client is actually forgotten by the advisor not clearly articulated uh, uh, to, to, to the client um, and you know I would say that is the vast majority of advisors if um, uh, an advisor is misunderstood you know what his obligations to a to a client are from a regulatory or a, uh, a, a common law sort of um, delivery of service and have been cutting corners, um, got a bit lazy perhaps. Then those ones are probably going to have to just remember what their job is and 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 make sure that they that they do do it. Otherwise, somebody else who has got perhaps more diligence um, or, or putting more effort in might 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 take that client away. Yeah, sure, um, and. Do you think that this is going to contribute to a downward pressure on costs or not at all? Um, you, you would imagine that, um, that, that it would, and I'm sure in some cases that um, uh, it, it will. Um, but I'm a, I'm a big fan of um, you You get what you pay for. Um, so I think the important thing is, is, is uh, to understand what it is that you're getting, um, what it does for you, um, and then, as an, a consumer, you can make an informed uh, informed choice. Um, so, I don't think it's very healthy to obsess on the cost of an investment solution and drive that down to a very low level, or indeed on you know, the cost of certain platforms. I mean, uh, I think in, in in practice that can lead to a very very poor poor outcome. Um, it's a lazy analytical uh, approach to simply look at cost and charges cost and charges is the easiest thing to measure so if you uh, if you wanted to be a, a, a insurance broker or compare compare the market then obviously price is the easiest one that you can go for um, but in uh, long-term financial planning there is much more to it than that um, and I, I think that uh, if the consumer has an informed choice so they know what they're getting and what they're paying for then if the consumer then knowingly chooses to pay for a service then you know uh, that that's absolutely fine. It's where perhaps consumers are paying for services they um, uh, don't require, uh, whether it's the asset manager or the or, or the advisor, or indeed if they're being told to have a low cost solution, um, which removes some of the things that might benefit them. That is also um, a, a bad outcome. So it's, suitability, obviously, and I, I think I've said, said this before, it is I actually like the MIFID word for, of compatibility. I think it's a more clear. Uh, articulation of what the word suitability is Um, and and I think if you look at it making sure that the advisor service or the investment is compatible to that individual client is far more important than necessarily driving down costs and charges I think the free market is good this is a free market economy Mm. and I think that that will make sure that on average the industry provides fair fair value but it also needs to provide choice um, and it's the actual consumer that needs to make an informed choice Mm -hmm. and how do you think that um, uh, the way advisors address suitability has changed um, since MIFID II, with the background, obviously, of, of, of markets potentially being a little bit more difficult um, in the future. Yeah, I, I think the, um, the the change is happening now um, because, going back to the point around uh, um, the consumer not quite um, 
uh, getting the full impact of, of the changes. It takes time. Change always takes time. You think about how IDR took time to, to, mm. to embed. Um, so I, I think that probably at, at the moment, there still is a, a general culture of trying to find a perfect solution and giving it to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, which is not necessarily the, the spirit of the compatibility part. Um, I think that the way in which um, the solutions describe themselves is, is is a little bit insular. So things like having an objective for medium long to long term growth. If you walked into Tesco, tapped someone on the shoulder and said, "Do you fancy having some medium to long term growth?" They wouldn't know what on earth you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's a lot of work to be done in terms of matching what an average consumer would understand and the way in which um, solutions describe describe themselves as well as how uh, an advisor would um, uh, describe them. And I think that's going to be a a process over um, a a number of years. Um, My view is that the sooner uh, the uh, selection of a solution is described to a client in the way they can understand, including not only the risks of capital loss, but the parts of the solution that would give you different um, uh, positive or negative returns in different scenarios and what you're actually getting. The sooner that is actually uh, part of the um, selection process, then that will make the um, reviews, the review process much more easier when those risks manifest themselves and the client will therefore be less likely to complain, they're more likely to be happy, they're more likely to to, to, to stay invested. Um, if the um, uh, advisor or solution is simply running around saying that this is the best thing since last bread, then the client will rightly be upset when it's not. Um, but if the client understands and has an engagement, um, an investment with a small eye in the approach that's being taken, and they understand you know, the pros and the cons, they understand the risks and rewards, and they understand when they are likely to happen, then it's much more engaged in long-term term relationship. Um, anyway, and if we, you know, at a very basic level, consumers or people in the, in, in the country investing more sooner and staying invested for longer um, is great for everybody, every stakeholder. It's good for the consumer, it's good for society, it's good for the FCA, it's good for the asset manager, it's good for the, the, the advisor. Whereas selling the wrong thing is bad for everybody. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you know, that, that, that will take, take a while for it to, to manifest through. But I think it, at the core of that, it's around how things are communicated and how we try to connect the end consumer with uh, you know, the very highly sophisticated and impressive financial service industry that we've got. Mm-hmm. But I suppose that's uh, the, the challenge there is that um, that the, the, the person that we bumped into in Tesco might not necessarily think of themselves as being risk one or two or three or four or five. Yeah. They'll, think of, they'll think, I've got this money, yeah. I'd like to do something with it and yeah. hopefully end up with more money that will yeah. either fund me through retirement or put my yeah. kids through school uni or something like that yeah and absolutely you know, and i think there is a uh, um, a real um, logical sense to the right person doing the right job so there are things that an asset manager does very well that an advisor can't there's things an advisor can do really well um, that software can't, and there's things that software that can can, can do that, uh, that advisors can, and indeed power planners and, and administrators. And the the key element of an advi- a really good financial planner's skill is the way in which they understand the, the the individual client, draw out 
how they're going to feel in different circumstances, try to help that person to make an, an, an informed decision um, and then convert that into the, 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 the solution. Um, so obviously the simplicity of a, of a, of a risk scale one to ten you know, is, is a starting point. Um, it will obviously, us like many other organisations, will use psychometric uh, testing to try and uh, draw that out scientifically. But ultimately, the way in which that um, advisor is empowered to explain the risk of return trade-off is through graphs, through um, projections of, of their actual numbers, through overlaying the the, the, the client's expected um, spending and saving habits um, and, and and needs through 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 cash flow, all helps to bring bring that uh, to life so that there is an alternative close where perhaps a uh, a consumer can choose to you know take higher risk or, or, or wait another year before they retire or have less in their retirement or expect a lower return for the risk they're taking. So though when it's articulated by a good advisor using the right um, tools of, of, of graphs and numbers and, and, and analogies and all this kind of stuff, then they can put that across in a way that the consumer can understand. But what's great about um, the ongoing suitability requirement is, of course, we know that you know, in any industry, the, the consumer tends to forget why they bought the thing in the first place. And the opportunity to go back and re-explain that on the same basis, remind the person of why what they've done, done is right, is actually an opportunity. Um, and you know, uh, I think that works as long as that engagement has happened. And that's what the good advisors are, are doing really well. And that's why they're worth the money. I guess that's the advantage they have over robo-advisors and stuff like that yeah absolutely i mean i i'm i'm very excited about what robotics and uh, artificial in, in, intelligence can uh, can do and i'm sure we're all you know we've all read various books like rise of the robots and all, all all sorts of things and you know you can imagine the sort of future star trek economies off the off, off the back of that um but you know in reality we all might sort of think what is the kind of job that's going to be lost you know, and uh, you know, you look at so Amazon sort of um, uh, having automated um, uh, uh, sorting. Yes, you can understand a robot would 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 do that, and you sort of think, well, what might last longer? And we look at things that are the soft skills like the arts and and counselling. You know, a financial advisor sits in that space. Mm. You know, the, the the ability to actually engage with the the person in front of you and really understand them on a counselling financial planning level uh, is much much more difficult for for, for robots to do. Um, and I think the whole art concept of robo advisors missing the point. I think robo administration is, is the key. You know, so through modern software, we're confident that we can actually take many of the mundane. Uh, 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 jobs that a financial uh, planner has to do and automate those to make them much more efficient so that they can actually spend more time talking to um, uh, uh, their, uh, their their clients which is actually what the client wants and what financial planners tell me is actually the most enjoyable part of the job. Mm -hmm. Well I was reading about an algorithm that can write news stories recently so I'm, def <laughs> I'm definitely brushing up the surface. <laughs> well Quill isn't it? Yeah, the, yeah. Uh, the sports results I think Absolutely. are written automatically aren't they? Yeah something yeah. along those lines. Yeah. Um, it appears most advisors have improved their processes around attitude to risk, which yep. is obviously the thing that you guys specialise in. But there are some concerns about the, uh, out there about how advisors determine capacity for loss. Yep. Um, and, and I was wondering um, whether you would agree with those concerns. Yeah, I think the, um, uh, the capacity for loss um, uh, question... Uh, people have got different views of of, of what it actually uh, uh, means. I think the the best way of um, understanding capacity for loss is through understanding 
um, the income and outgoings, assets and liabilities of somebody, and you know, using some uh, element of, of um, projection and cash flow to see, you know, what are the circumstances where uh, this person would physically be in trouble if they lost a, a certain amount amount of money, um, and that's obviously the literal capacity. Um, I think when we uh, understand a um, a client's uh, tolerance for risk. Um, one of the best ways of actually contracting verbally with the client as to what loss they would tolerate. A great way is to bring to light a specific amount of money that they would be prepared prepared to lose. And um, that's part of the tolerance um, uh, uh, com- conversation. You know, if you were, um, you know, uh, twenty and you're saving regularly into your um, uh, pension, but you're, um, you're 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 poor. Then your capacity for loss is you know irrelevant because you can't get all the money anyway. You know, so you know that money is going into your um, uh, your, your workplace scheme. And the only option you've got is stop paying for it. So it's affordability, not a capacity for loss question. When you get to you know an older state where you're sitting on you know hundreds of thousands of pounds and you've got some specific plans for your, for your, for your for your retirement and if if you don't if if the market's fell by a certain amount you would literally starve then clearly you've got less capacity capacity for loss so it, it capacity has to sit with the individual person and the financial planner make, make making that call what um is also important though is the fact that uh, when you are looking at risk controls within an organisation or an advice business, is that you have ways of capturing that in um, um, a documented way. So we do, within our tool, provide some capacity loss check- checklist-type questionnaires, but they're not psychometric, you know, because psychometric is all about tolerance. The capacity is is the facts of can this person afford to to, to take this risk or not. Um, and I think that's, that, that's great. So I, I'd say you know, that... For someone who does a proper ingoing, outgoing, asset liabilities, and uses cash flow correctly, they are going to have capacity for loss absolutely defined very well for that client. Mm-hmm. But I guess it's hard for an individual client to be able to answer that question themselves yes. because it gets tied up in a lot yeah. of baggage. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and part of you know part of what financial planning is is you know telling me that answer. Mm. You know, uh, I mean, everybody. Uh, is probably slightly oblivious as to what their financial situation is, and um, you know, I'm, I imagine I'm spending more than uh, I earn, and uh, uh, and I'm, I'm imagine I'm not saving enough. And I'm, you know, even though I'm in this industry, sitting down with someone to tell me to stop spending so much money on um, Sky Sports and, and Starbucks, and the fact that I can't really afford my lifestyle, and that I should um, start saving more, you know, is incredibly valuable. Great. Okay, Chris, thank you very much for your time, and thank you very much everybody for listening, and uh, tune in again soon. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.